This is The Guardian. Rishi Sunak wants everyone to learn maths until the age of 18 to change our anti-maths mindset. We make jokes about not being able to do maths. It's socially acceptable. We say things like, oh, maths, I can't do that. It's not for me. And everyone laughs. But at a time when strikes are interrupting learning, teachers are saying they don't have the resources they need and students are still grappling with the impact of COVID, maybe his sums don't add up. Labour's got a plan, Rishi Sunak doesn't, and it's Rishi Sunak that needs to go back to school. So, where have 13 years of Tory government, 10 education secretaries and one pandemic left the UK's schools? I'm John Harris and you're listening to Politics Week in the UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are The Guardian columnists, Gabby Hinsliff and Raphael Bear. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello, John. All right, let's get straight to it. Rishi Sunak says that this country has an anti-maths mindset and he wants to ensure that everybody studies maths beyond 18. If you can think back to your, say, 16-year-old self, how would you have felt about that? I don't know whether you, either of you actually did carry on doing maths beyond that point. I didn't. And if, if someone had insisted that I did, I think my attitude to my sixth form years would have been very, very different. It might have been the ruin of me. I was that bad at maths. Gabby? My 16-year-old self liked English, unsurprisingly, for a journalist and languages. And I would have rebelled if forced to do maths in sixth form. But then maybe I'd be more mathematically literate now. So who knows? Right. Uh, yeah, same for me up to a point. So I was, I would have been, I was very glad to drop maths after GCSE. But having been quite maths phobic, I had a fantastic teacher precisely for those two years leading up to GCSE. Uh, for, and he managed to do that thing that made it sort of click in my head in a way that I suddenly appreciated that maths can be beautiful. And at the very end, I, I realized I actually quite, quite liked it. And then, uh, reader, I married it in the sense that I married a maths teacher. Um, not my teacher, not <laughs> oh, that teacher. No. Um, he was a bit old for me. Um, uh, I married a female <laughs> maths teacher. Uh, and, uh, I, I've subsequently come to, uh, not unrelated, perhaps a, a much a greater appreciation of what a fantastic subject it is, and I I quite support the idea of keeping it in the curriculum as late as possible. Really, is this just because yeah. it keeps your yeah. wife in a job? That too. Well, there, the problem is we need definitely need more math teachers. So she's not. There's never no shortage of demand for for math teachers already. Uh, no, I I I think there is a, just a kind of a level of intellectual and academic rigor uh, and a, a kind of quality of both abstract thinking and practical reasoning that is just unparalleled in in almost any other subject um it's, it's just it's all good stuff wow okay i mean intellectually i can see where you're coming from instinctively that makes me feel quite ill i think our generation was very was taught maths very badly actually i know well, I've, well that's the other thing i've come to realize no doubt this part of the conversation will sort of recur <laughs> later in the episode but let us move on we are going to talk more about rishi sunak's announcement and more widely the british education system with gabby and raf but i wanted to first talk to a head teacher and get her reaction to what rishi sunak said and the sort of bigger context surrounding it jill burbridge is the head teacher of Leighton sixth form college in london hello jill thanks for joining us today 
Afternoon. Tell us a little bit about Leighton Sixth Form College. How many kids there are there, the sort of socioeconomic makeup of the community you serve, all that stuff? Yes, yeah, so we're in East London. We've got about two, just over 2,200 students that study with us. So that's A-level and vocational uh, level three qualifications. Um, some students doing uh, level two and ESOL and level one provision as well. In East London, as you can imagine, it's quite a diverse community, um, quite high levels of economic deprivation um, and you know, many of the issues that you'd associate with a sort of inner city, urban, sixth form environment. Okay. Now, taking Rishi Sunak's um, proposal at face value, a lot of the young people you work with would suddenly be doing maths if he had his way, it's fair to say. I wanted to start by playing you a bit of what the Prime Minister said. It's true of so many of our industries. In healthcare, maths allows you to calculate dosages. In retail, data skills allow you to analyse sales and calculate discounts. And the same is true in all our daily lives, from managing household budgets to understanding mobile phone contracts or mortgages. Now, we also know the benefit of maths for employability and earnings. Even just basic numeracy skills can increase your earnings by around £1,600 a year. So put simply, Without a solid foundation in maths, our children risk being left behind, shut out of careers they aspire to, and the lives that they want to lead. Still doing that slightly condescending <laughs> children's story time voice, but we will move on. That was Rishi Sunak speaking on Monday, announcing his plans, proposals, for maths to be taught up to 18 years old in all schools. Jill, what's your instinctive response to what he said? Well, nobody would disagree that, you know, having a highly numerate, uh, you know, population is a good thing, whether that's children, young people or adults. I just think the timing of this, given all the other challenges we're facing in education, needs some thinking. But also, both on a philosophical and a practical level, I just don't I don't see how we implement this. And the fact is, he's given himself two years in order to, to implement it when, who knows, he possibly won't be in post to actually even oversee that implementation. So you just mentioned philosophical and practical issues. Let's take those in reverse order. So the practical ones, first yeah. of all. There are sort of feasibility questions here about how on earth you would do yeah. this, right? So, well, feasibly, where are we going to get these maths teachers from? We are desperately short of uh, maths teachers throughout every phase of education, uh, whether it's those who are highly skilled at teaching maths in primary through to those teaching maths um, at sort of post-16. Uh, post where are these maths teachers going to come from? I, I don't know if this is still the case, but it was certainly true a few years ago that if every single maths graduate in the country qualified to be a maths teacher, we would still not have enough maths teachers. We we have a real crisis in terms of the recruitment and retention of, of good teachers across the curriculum. And then uh, philosophically, why do you feel uneasy about it? Well, so philosophically, so first of all, I've got about 600 students here who are doing maths beyond the age of 16, which is not A-level maths or core maths. It is repeating their GCSE maths because we have a system which is predicated on failure. So every year, only 70% of those taking a GCSE exam in maths at 16 will get a grade four or above. 
So that's 30% of those young people who will have failed. And when they get into post-16 education, it is a game of diminishing returns. So only about 20% will then pass. So every year we are condemning thousands of young people to feel a failure in their maths qualifications. So if, if our whole system is based on failure, how are we going to reverse that mindset that, you know, young people struggle in terms of their confidence and their positivity around maths? Um, so we have to rethink the whole fundamentals of our, of our education system and actually how we, how we deliver maths from a very, very young age to build the kind of confidence and the, the mastery of maths. Um, that you really need to equip you to be able to be then right, a successful right. mathematician. It sounds like in the most sort of abstract theoretical sense, you might agree with Rishi Sunak, but all of these practical questions mean you fall completely the other way. That's that's essentially your position. Yeah, I mean, what I would like is um, a kind of, of an, an understanding from those that make educational policy without ever having to deliver it is actually what it looks like on the ground. Uh, because we are forever condemned to whether it's, you know, education ministers or the prime minister issuing, uh, you know, what sounds at a, you know, theoretical level, like not a bad idea. And by the time we are dealing with the consequences on the ground, they are no longer in post. Michael Gove being a case in point. And I think that's the frustration for me. We are facing so many other challenges at the moment. However much we might be committed to, you know, developing the kind of numeracy skills of our young people. It just doesn't feel like the most pressing and urgent and immediate concern that we have. Uh, let's just talk quickly about those fundamental issues. So tell me about the current picture as you see it, um, A, at your sixth form college, but in schools more widely. What are the most pressing things you're facing? Yeah, so I think for everybody, it is dealing with the wider ramifications of COVID. COVID may have gone away to a large extent in terms of, you know, um, the control of infectious disease, but in terms of the, the consequences for uh, young people's education experience, their mental health, their levels of confidence about their future, their optimism about the future, all of those things we are still working through and we are under-resourced to do that. The cost of living crisis isn't helping. It's having an impact on our students, on their families. You know, if you've not got enough to eat, if you're in inadequate accommodation, you cannot learn effectively. But it's also having an impact on the professionals that support them, whether it's our teaching staff or our support staff. Our funding is incredibly stretched. So when the funding increase was announced, it was protected in real terms. But that was when inflation was 2.2%. So now over 10%. And we're also dealing, obviously, with industrial action. And that's indicative of very low morale within the profession. And then to top it all, in terms of post-16 education, we've got widespread vocational reform going on. So the reform of our vocational qualifications, which is being rushed through at a pace which we cannot cope with in terms of actually the infrastructure we need to be able to successfully deliver those qualifications. So that's just a few of the things that are, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, other, other than that, it's quite that's quiet great. at the yeah, moment. It's really, yeah. really easy, yeah. yeah there is, so there is a sort of um, misplaced, somewhat irrelevant, let them eat maths kind of tone to what Rishi Sunak has said. It just, it just doesn't seem to fit in with any of your most pressing issues. Yeah, let's sort out these crises first and then let's talk about how we, you know, really enhance and develop the educational provision for our young people.
The last point, of late I have read a lot, although I think it's still overlooked as an issue, about so-called ghost children, about children and young people who've disappeared from school and college roles in the course of the pandemic, hundreds of thousands of them. Are you aware of that directly as an issue? So we, obviously for most of our students, they're on two-year programmes. They'll start in year one of an A-level course or a level three vocational course, and then obviously return to us to do the second year. And we lost a large number of students um, sort of in between that first and second year without really knowing what had happened. So normally we'd have very close tabs on on that and we'd have a lot of contact with those young people. But because of the remote nature of education through a large part of that period, we had young people who we barely saw physically in person and then who disappeared and were then untraceable. I mean, being in London, we have quite a fluid population anyway, um, and we will have families relocating for a whole host of reasons, not least financial ones. So we're not unfamiliar with, you know, young people, the circumstances of young people's lives, meaning that they leave us to move elsewhere. But that was really unprecedented. And in terms of safeguarding, a real worry, because actually we don't know where those young people are and what they're doing. Um, And I I think, again, it's one of those wider ramifications of COVID that we're yet to really experience the full impact of. And I think that's there are a lot of latent issues that are still kind of not, that have not yet fully surfaced. Yeah, yeah, you're still dealing with with a huge swathe of all that. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, Jill, thank you for joining us. Really, really appreciate it. Lovely. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Gabby and Raf are still here. I wonder what each of you made of A, the Prime Minister's announcement, and B, the Prime Minister's announcement in the context of what we just heard from Jill, really. Gabby. Yeah, I think many parents would have listened to that. It's, it's sort of puzzlement, really, the announcement, because it's not that, I mean, I'm perfectly prepared to be persuaded there's a case for maths to 18. You know, lots of other countries do it. There must be a reason for that. But most people, it's not exactly sort of setting the school, the class WhatsApps on fire at the moment, the demand for extra maths. It's more, when are they going to sort out the school strike, especially among parents who've got kids coming up to, to GCSEs and A-levels this year and are missing yet more time because of it. It's, oh, there's going to be anyone left to teach our kids. And it's also, I mean, the other thing that really comes through is mental health, teenage mental health, which is not something that's in schools control, but it's having a huge impact now, I think, on kids' performance at school. If the Prime Minister wanted to talk about that, he would be engaging with parents, as it is. Yeah. I think it feels like, okay, we know Rishi likes maths, but why is this, you know, why is this our concern? Thing I would, yeah, I agree with all of that. But I would add also that it was very interesting, the examples that he gave, I mean, the, 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 the justification he gave for why it's terribly important to study maths, you know, knowing your mortgage calculations, being able to do percentages, whatever it is, that's all stuff you can do with the GCSE maths. And I thought, well, you I really think can. Jill, even I can do yeah, that stuff. And, and what, what Jill said, you know, was very interesting about the number of kids who are doing maths after 16 because they're trying to have to reset their GCSE. So what he's really saying is, you know, we want kids to be able to pass their GCSE maths. Well, kind of no shit. I mean, <laughs> Maybe do that. So it, it, it seems to me that sort of as a narrative proposition about who Rishi Sunak is and what he wants, that is, you know, as for reasons we've heard, completely detached from the reality of you know problems of retaining teachers, yeah, problems yeah. of paying teachers. Yeah, I thought there was a, a flavour in it, a, a bit of sort of follow my lead, and you two can be rich, and therefore we were back in the world of Rishi Sunak can't use a contactless payment card, and he's had to borrow a normal looking car from someone. It was a bit. It was ivory towerish. But in even its tone, but it wasn't I even thought. consistent with that. I mean, there is evidence that 
maths, having maths A level pays a premium later on in life. And that's partly skewed by the fact that lots of people with maths, you know, go into the city or whatever where salaries are high. And it's not clear that that premium will be maintained as we go into a sort of world that's changed by AI or whatever. And it's, it's also not clear if everyone has A level maths, obviously there's not going to be a premium attached to it. But so none of this kind of makes sense. But if that's why he was wanting to argue that everyone should do maths A-level and therefore you'll pay off, well, in that case, insist that everyone's doing maths A-level. That's not what he's doing. It's as if he wants to move towards something more like a baccalaureate system where we do more general spread of things at A-level. You carry on with more subjects, but he doesn't want to say that. So we're left in this middle kind of ground. I mean, the one thing it has going for it is it really does sound like it's a personal thing. This is not a focus group policy because no focus group wants this. <laughs> this really is like a very personal kind of, I love maths and I want everyone to love maths. Okay, great. But, Although, Although I would say the one the one politician before Rishi Sunak who personally extolled the value of this policy to me personally once, who cared very passionately about this, was Liz Truss, who's a daughter of a maths professor, who's actually a very strong mathematician. And her mathematical capabilities did not stop her driving the UK economy into a ditch. That's true. I mean, that's the other, the great irony in here is, is uh, hearing conservative politicians extol the wonders of numeracy the very the very people who for the last three years have trounced and defied basic numeracy in various forms i mean god knows from the 350 million a week on the nhs onwards right maths is, uh, and sort of numerical rectitude has not been at the top of their minds shall we say the other thing is um this announcement as jill said is sort of made in defiance of the, this dire situation in schools across the country, particularly after the pandemic. I mean, there are so many elephants in the room here. For years and years, there's been a crisis of teacher retention and recruitment and teacher morale. We know that inflation is gobbling up schools' funding. And then you've got this conversation, which, as I said, I think it's still overlooked, about a very real crisis about so-called ghost children and so on. And that's not really intruding on politics nearly enough, any of it, is it? There's not a substantial conversation about education happening between the Tories and Labour at the moment. That space has become very dominated recently by, you know, if you think about education announcements that you will have heard, it's all been about early years and childcare. I'm not not yeah, saying that isn't important. It's hugely important, but it's not like the whole of education. And there's a kind of big sort of empty spot where no one wants to say anything between about age five and age 16, where what you're being offered is extra maths. You know, there's, I think, and it's partly because education policy in the past has been very dominated by reform. You know, there's going to be academies, there's going to be free schools, we're going to change the structure of education somehow. And actually what education needs now is money, staff, pandemic catch up, you know, doing the basics, fixing the basics and getting them right. And that doesn't sound whizzy and exciting, I think. Anyway, let's pause here for a moment. When we come back, we will be trying to tackle some even bigger questions. Among them, what we should really be teaching kids in schools. Welcome back. We're now going to talk about some really big themes in education policy. Um, it seems to me, I suppose, that over the last 13 years, the government's approach to education started out as one thing and then became another. Um, from 2010 to 2014, Michael Gove was in charge and you had this huge project of educational reform and revolution, which sort of encompassed everything, the content of what people were being taught, the structures of our school system in England, um, all of it. And then once he went... Education policy sort of stagnated and the problems of schools festered. 
And I had a feeling, really, that once um, the great Gavin Williamson became Education Secretary, you could argue we kind of knew education wasn't a priority anymore. And so all of these questions, very big questions, about the education system in England, and maybe by implication, education systems in the rest of the UK are still swirling around. So I suppose as much as anything, I wanted to have a conversation about where our school system has gone wrong. There's t- there's a number of things going on here. I mean, cer- certainly I mean, the, the structural changes that Michael Gove uh, brought about, you know, building on and massively accelerating something that actually had started when Ed Balls was Secretary of State for Children Education, Children's Schools and Families, it was called then. That's a whole sort of separate issue in terms of the, the ideological notion of, of, in quotes, freedom from local authority control and allowing academies uh, and briefly free schools to sort of manage their affairs independent of, of, of central government and local government. And, you know, they're, they're, you've had mixed results on that. And then separately, there was what you're talking about is the curriculum reforms, which are very yeah. small C conservative. And certainly in the you know, a subject that I loved, which was English and studying literature, there, there's no doubt in my mind that looking at what's happened to it, they, they, they it's absolutely bleached any joy or pleasure or, or love out of it by making it this, this grad grindy and brutal uh, enforcement of the most joyless understanding yeah. of what constitutes language reading. Pause there, because this is where I tell my story, that when my daughter was six or seven, one of her friends came to the house after school and uh, he got our copy of the Gruffalo book down and he opened it and I walked out the playroom and he was sitting there reading the Gruffalo going verb, adjective, noun. <laughs> and I said, for God's sake, it's a story about a monster in the woods and a mouse. And already that sort of grad grindian uh, process of, of of robotically teaching this stuff was well underway. And it was really, really sobering to see that. That said, I have spoken to uh, t- certainly primary school teachers who work in very deprived areas who will say, this is something that people who uh, live in houses and raise their children uh, in in homes where there are books all over the shelves and books everywhere and they instill a natural love of literature uh, often get wrong, which is that actually that approach, some of it is scientifically driven and kids who were falling behind in reading learn to read faster and some of it actually really works. And it's quite easy to be sort of loftily sniffy about systems that actually got kids who were really struggling to do stuff that they wouldn't otherwise be able to do. Gabby, nonetheless, it it seems to me we are losing or have lost parts of education that are not only crucial, but do emphasise that sort of nurturing, holistic side of education. There There are crises, ongoing crises, in the teaching of music, art and drama, for example, which again is the context for Sunak making this this statement about maths and sort of makes that look even more misplaced, actually. The fact that music and, and drama, for example, are disappearing from a lot of schools. I think that absolutely has been the case. But I also think, I mean, it's a hugely mixed bag. I think, you know, as my experience as a parent has been that some things are way better taught now than they were you know, when I was at school, maths is better taught. English, as you say, is more miserable. There's more richness to the curriculum in some ways than there was when I was at school, stuff that we never covered, you know, stuff that is far more excitingly taught now, good or bad. But I think the overall thing that's really struck me over the last 10 years is just the whatever curriculum norms you set, whatever, you know, whatever arguments we have about whether or not everyone should compulsorily learn Dryden or whatever it is, it's the money in the end that determines whether or not your child has a positive experience of school and whether or not your school has the resources available to teach your child. I was talking to a friend this week who is trying to hire, who's a head of department, who's trying to recruit to an amazing school and literally you put the adverts out and nobody response there on you know young people are not going into teaching older teachers are retiring and 
in the middle, you've got a hard-pressed band of people who don't earn enough money and are wanting to get out. And in those circumstances, you know, that seems to me like the fundamental thing to fix. Beyond that, there is a much bigger argument, as you say, about what education is for and what it is that we're kind of, are you dinning things into people so that they can get a job? Or are you trying to instill a love of learning? And are you trying to instill creative thinking? And are you trying to teach children to ask questions and interrogate the world around them, which I would like them to be able to do? I mean, that question about underfunding is huge in one respect among many others, which is that when you hear a speech like Rishi Sunak gave and you hear other politicians talking about Britain competing in the modern world and the tech sector and all of that, and then you look at the reality of how kids are still taught by and large, particularly in that area, computing and so on, because of a lack of underfunding, there's such a huge gap between the way that politicians talk about that stuff and kids' actual experience, which very often, even now, will be of one IT room with PCs from 10 years ago and just simply not enough teach- teachers to teach people. Yeah, and I think, this, well, and I think this, a, when you that. talk about computing, then I think there's a bigger problem here, which, which, you know, eight years ago, I was writing a big piece for The Guardian about the big thing at the time, which is everyone had to learn to code. You know, kids had yeah, to learn yeah. to code and this was going to be the key to the jobs of the future. And I spent weeks going around primary schools that, you know, scratched together these code. They found some computer nerd in the, among the parents who taught this coding club and the kids were all getting really excited about it. Eight years on, what's happening? AI codes now. You know, coding jobs are being eaten up because, <laughs> because AI's taught itself to do it. And, you know, we'll now re-engineer painfully over five years or something what kids do in sixth form, only to discover that by the time that's happened and they've got out of sixth form, you know, the clamor is for something else entirely. You know, re-engineering, the trouble is that education moves too slowly to be re-engineered to a workplace that's, you know, evolving quite fast. And often politicians guess wrong what is going to be the requirement. But that's an argument for teaching core disciplines. I mean, that was always the argument. Oh, I don't think it's necessarily a bad one for continuing to teach Latin in the sense that as a discipline, in terms of understanding the way language works and giving introduction to some combination of history and sort of a, the cognitive gymnastics of trying to do it. It's as good as learning any other language. And in our lifetime, the kind of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy Babelfish will become a reality. You won't need to study a foreign language to be Just able to Just to remind younger them. listeners of what exactly that was. That was a fish in this story that you put in your ear and it enabled you to understand any language. Yes, That's thank you. Yes, exactly that. And and that, that, that it, something, some version of that will become technologically available in our lifetime, I'm pretty sure. You, you had calculators when we were at school, but that wasn't a reason not to learn how to, you know, as I say, the sort of the cognitive sort of musculature that you need to acquire that you can could acquire through maths you know and and your point about ai gabby is is exactly right that the the challenge there and where i think the sort of the govian conservative curriculum approach is really undermined is that actually the foundations of knowledge you know, as a corpus that you are as a canon that you're supposed to take on are, are being sort of superseded now by all these other skills that you have to acquire which is to understand to, to the, the as well the epistemological challenge of knowing what's true and what's real you don't need to memorize facts all the facts are available to you in the you know, more than you could ever possibly acquire in your phone in your pocket what you need to know is to discern you know good sources uh, what's true what isn't all those critical thinking is one of the central problems about the state of state education in england that it's so politicized and it's treated or has been treated so ideologically that the conservative party's default setting it seems to me is to really emphasize these themes of tradition and rigor and discipline 
as against trendy lefty teachers and child-centered learning and all that. And that's the divide which has been sort of projected onto education policy endlessly. And it means that these big questions about how you make education fit the modern world get neglected. I think all, you know, there is not a department that isn't weaponized in some ways by by ideological battles and education is no different. I always think the bigger problem with education actually is that it's the one thing everyone thinks if you've been to school, you think you're an expert on it. Yeah. And all of our all of our ideas about education are colored by, you know, what school was like for us. Politicians are generally people who did well at school. They generally pass lots of exams and you know, and 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 I think that is the single probably biggest problem in that people don't assume MPs don't come in assuming that they know everything about defence or assuming that they know everything about transport policy, but we all come in with very fixed, everyone comes to this with very fixed ideas about what school, what people should be doing in school. An interesting corollary to that, though, is I remember suddenly a former advisor in the Department for Education uh, saying to me that the politics of, of, of education are complicated by the fact that the, the cohort of voters who really care passionately about it, care about it while their children are at school and then they forget about it. So I don't forget about it entirely, but, you know, every you, people use the NHS throughout their life. They use the school system when they've got children of school age. And so actually the salience of it never quite soars up the way the salience of the NHS or some other issues might do. I think Gabby's point about politics being dominated by people who basically liked school is a really important one. I mean, if you talk to you know teachers in particularly in deprived areas, you know where you know or you engage in in a debate about how to about discipline in schools, for example, uh, where you know a lot of teachers will say, "Look, it's the the kids." who most want discipline are the ones who have the home environments that make them afraid and they need the boundaries and the kids who are who are miserable at the end of the day on Friday because they're going to have to go back to a home environment that is traumatizing to them and they're most relieved on Monday morning because they can go back to the security of school which is you know not a perspective that I think a lot of people who have happy home lives think about there's a whole set of understandings about what are the duties that a school has towards kids and what the school means to communities uh, or, or the obligations they have that just aren't experienced by someone like Rishi Sunak or anyone on the front bench probably of certainly the Conservative Party and a lot of the Labour Party. Okay, so this is interesting, particularly in the context of something that was mentioned earlier, this crisis of mental health among children and young people. What's being overlooked and missed out and what are the consequences? Pandemic catch-up is the big, big, big one. Still not... Still kind of, the, we'll see this summer, you know, when you get the first GCSE and A-level results that have been marked normally, and more importantly, probably the first set of SATs for primary school children who were not yet in school, were in early years when lockdown started. It's the youngest kids, you couldn't teach them over Zoom. You know, there, there's no way that four and five-year-olds learn like that. So they just, you know, missed out horrendously on all the basics. So we don't know what's happened to them. At the other end of the age scale, you've got the, the people, Jill, the kids Jill was talking about who disappeared from education and didn't come back, who got out of the habit of going to school and never regained it. We all remember the, the sort of catch-up SARS plan that was put to government for billions to be spent on closing that attainment gap. You know, a decade's worth of achievement in shrinking the attainment gap, totally undone by the pandemic. And the Treasury just turned around under one uh, Rishi Sunak, I believe, this Chancellor, um, turned around and said, you know, there's no money for that. And so schools have just sort of been expected to kind of lump it or, you know, somehow magically transform and catch up all of that stuff without any extra funding. And that it, it amazes me that that's just kind of dropped out of the discussion that we have about education now. Raf, I suppose the other thing is, is 
is that if the conversation is focused on results and the pursuit of academic excellence, you know, and how education feeds the economy and all the rest of it, some very, very big questions about the essential state of society and the reality of children's lives and the more nurturing aspects of schooling get completely missed out. Yeah, I wouldn't underestimate the importance of just getting good results. I mean, ultimately, you you do need people to be doing jobs that are well paid and that stuff about having an economy that's competitive in a global environment. And we're not all just kind of polishing machines or driving taxis for very high end sophisticated robots. It's not it's not a future that we want to be in. We want to have. And so if you want nuclear physicists, they have to do well at physics at school. But but crucially, yeah, the idea that you just front load all of your skills and knowledge uh, and then between 16 and 18, you're kind of baked, maybe tack on a few years at university with a bit of icing and a cherry on top and you're ready for the labour market when you're going to live for decades and decades after that. It's madness. I mean, well, actually what you want is a, a situation where later in your life you're going to have to go back and you're going to acquire new skills or if you didn't get the numeracy that you ought to have done at school there is a system by which you can top that up you can go back i mean you talk about the you know, people political establishment for one of a better word not really knowing enough about the bits of education system they didn't experience well you know further education adult education i mean that's famously the has been the cinderella service of this sector forever but something like that has to be there in parallel to people's you know um, complex episodic working lives now because otherwise you're going to have more and more people falling into labor market obsolescence in their 20s 30s 40s right on that thoroughly joyous uplifting note <laughs> we will draw things to a close with the advice to our listeners that you too if you're not numerate should get with it and go and study some times tables and simultaneous equations if you have the time thank you so much for joining us Rafa Gabby thank you thank you thank you for listening I hope you enjoyed today's episode if you did make sure you subscribe to Politics Week UK wherever you get your podcast and even better leave, leave us a review there is a star rating system on most platforms you can mark us out of a possible five the most basic sort of numeracy you should be able to grasp we'd like it if it was a nice review this episode was produced by Frankie Toby the music is by Axel Cucutier and the executive producers are Maz Eptahars and Nicole Jackson this is The Guardian 